Hey, alright. And welcome to Better Yet. I'm Tim Crisp, your host. Better Yet is a conversation about music. And our conversation this week is with Mike Park. Mike Park, Asian Man Records, is on the show this week doing backflips over here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Namdi for our intro music. Marcus Nuccio for our graphics. Each week, you can see all those on our website, betteryetpod.com. Invite you all to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. You can follow us on Bandcamp, betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com. Mike Park is on my podcast. I'm opening a Heineken 0.0 for the occasion. You know, I had a wild time prepping this interview because, I mean... Like anyone out there who has a podcast called As You Were, a podcast about Alkaline Trio, and also co-hosts a podcast with Brendan Kelly, Mike Park has been a pretty important figure in my life, and you're going to hear more about how far back that all goes in our conversation. But looking at some old interviews that Mike has done over the years as I'm putting an interview together, I was just realizing just how deep that influence really is. There are things that I've grown so accustomed to saying and feeling that they become so internalized and so part of everything else that you forget where that initial thought came from. So I'm reading Mike Park talking about only working with people he likes and gaining an understanding of their ethics before he puts a record out with them. And then I realized, oh yeah, that party line that I have about only interviewing people whose music I like and talking to people only if they feel like they're attached to their community. I learned that all from Mike Park. He's never done a contract. Guy has sold over a million records out of his parents' garage in San Jose for 25 years. Never tried to make it anything bigger than he had to. He always wanted to do it out of the garage. And that's the kind of story that I've always been so moved by. I was thinking a lot about when I talked to Steve Albini in the summer of 2019 and talking to that guy about what he's done and how he wasn't interested and taking a percentage off of records that he produced. And he just said, I like the work. It's a good job, and I like going to it. Shit is my ideal. And even when ideals are most often impossible, it's still possible to put that energy into what you do. And I've been feeling great about doing this podcast the last few months, really, just taking it all in. A lot of positivity. And we've also got a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Podcast, where we've got some very fun audiovisual programming available to our pledgers. Patreon-exclusive audio, like oversights, where I talk with a guest about albums we might have missed. and did a Patreon post this week about Die Ray, these music journals that I managed to acquire at an estate sale recently 
Dire was an electronic music journal that was edited by Herbert Eimert and Carl Heinz Stockhausen in the late 50s. These things are wild. Essays from the likes of Stravinsky and John Cage. These wild-ass visuals in there. So I did some reporting on what I learned and shared a playlist of early electronic music. We got a whole slew of audio over there from the Life's Work podcast that I did about Laura Stevenson's Sit Resist, all my interviews with Laura, as well as my conversation with Chris Gethard is over there. Plus, we get a weekly contribution from our guests, just a special piece of bonus content. Brian from Thou gave us an entire Thou live set from 2018, uh, a playlist from Lucy Dacus, Sarah Tudson of Illuminati Hotties, covers Augusta Koch doing June on the West Coast by Bright Eyes, Tony Molina and Rose Melberg doing 14 Cheerleader Cold Front by GBV, Jake Ewald of Slaughter Beach Dog doing Drunken Angel by Lucinda Williams. And this week it's me and Mike Park going in-depth on Alkaline Trios for Your Lungs Only and Lawrence Arms Split with the Chinkies doing my favorite Asian Man Records releases. Mike dropped some fun information in there too. We've got two tiers of Patreon pledging. Uh, if you pledge $3 a month, you get access to all that bonus audio and visual content that we're posting weekly. If you pledge $10 a month, you get all that. Plus, every three months, we'll be sending off some cool merchandise. Did these really cool custom notebooks that look damn sharp. I'm getting good at block printing. It's exciting. You pledge to our Patreon no matter which tier you're pledging to. We split the revenue from that Patreon evenly between the show, our guests, and organizations chosen by our guests. We're paying Mike for his time uh, for this interview, and we're also sending money this week to the Sidewalk Project. The Sidewalk Project is a project-based arts and public health organization that exists to create community and wellness for those who live outdoors. Happy to be helping them out this week. If you'd like to support them and support the show, go to patreon.com slash Podcast. All right. My guest this week is Mike Park. Mike is a musician and label owner from San Jose, California, who came up with his band Skank and Pickle and Dill Records, a label that started as a means to release Skank and Pickle Records in the early 90s. After Mike left Skank and Pickle, he started Asian Man Records. And in the 26 years that Asian Man Records has been in existence, he's released records like Slapstick's Look It, The Broadway's Broken Star, God Damn It by the Alkaline Trio, Ghost Stories, Guided Tour Chicago by the Lawrence Arms. But even more recently, past guests of this show bands like hard girls Cayetana, warm thoughts winter break the exquisites lemuria wait lemuria is not a past guest yet mike's also got records solo records ogi kubo station bruce lee band the chinkies we talk about as much as we get to it's such a treat subscribe to the show patreon.com slash podcast we'll be back next week for now, here's me and Mike Park. 
for sure. <laughs> and, the, and then you got JT attacking uh, Dean when he's when he's got the costume on, right? Yeah, oh yeah, the mascot. The ma- mascot. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. JT. Oh. <laughs> so, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite Degrassi next gen uh, character? Gosh. I would maybe say like Toby <laughs> just cause Toby has punk roots in real life. So, right. He was on the, he was on your show, right? Yeah. How is he? Is he good? He's, he's not too, uh, egotistical. No, he's great. No, he's great. <laughs> he's, uh, I knew he had punk roots because he had, um, he had become friends with Amanda Stepto when he was you know, young and she was an adult and, he had told her he was a fan of ska. So she got in touch with me, said, Hey, can you send like any kind of care package? And I did. And he remembered. Oh, wow. So that's so cool. And then Amanda Steptoe, that's spike. Yeah. Yeah. So you, ha- how long have you had the type of relationship with spike from Degrassi to where she's reaching out and saying like, Hey, can you send, I'm trying to think when I, I, I met her in 92, I believe in Toronto. And then the following year she came out and visited, drove out to California with a friend and stayed at, stayed at my house, which was my parents' house. And, uh, from there we just kind of became good friends. That's amazing. She, she was teaching in Japan too. And I, I was, I toured out there. And she mm-hmm. came, she came with us for like a couple days on the tour. That's honestly so. cooler than anything you've done as far as uh, <laughs> cool bands. Yeah, I was pretty stoked. <laughs> so it's, it, it, it's Saturday, and you're, you're you said you're working a little bit today. But are you are you good at giving yourself days off? Or- no. <laughs> I'm ter- terrible at it. <laughs> I have a hard time relaxing, just relaxing. My relax time is usually when I'm just done with the day and I just kind of veg out in front of the TV mm-hmm. or play words with friends aimlessly with like friends. 50 different, 50 different people that I don't know. <laughs> I have a lot of people that just add me and I just keep playing and then we never say a word, but we're just like highly competitive. I love and that. I, I love it too. Like, like I don't know who this person is. Some <laughs> random older guy with, with a child in this profile picture. But we've been battling it out for <laughs> months now. So, Asian Man Records is the office still the same garage? Exactly the same. Nothing has changed. It's amazing. And where are your folks from originally? Uh, they're from both are from Seoul. Uh-huh. And they, I'm trying to think when they came to the U.S., probably my dad came first. He went to the University of Kansas in like 1965. Mm-hmm. Then my mom went to beauty school in San Francisco, um, probably around the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I've always been on the West Coast, uh, particularly Northern California and the South Bay, San Jose, California area. Mm-hmm. What did your dad go to school for? Oh, he was 
studying like uh, some kind of microbiology. He was going to be a doctor, but it was taking too long. So he bailed after he, he went to University of Oregon and got his master's and then mm. just got a job as a microbiologist. Wow. So I think he was pre-med at first. And then he said, oh, I have a family coming. I got to I got to get a job. Do you have siblings? I have, I have one older sister, yes. Yeah. And so was there music in the house when you were growing up? Uh, not really. We were all forced to take piano, but we never loved it. Um, so I think actually I cried myself out of piano lessons. And my piano teacher told my mom, like, uh, let's don't force them anymore. <laughs> And then we both played, I think my my sister played clarinet, I played saxophone. And it wasn't like, I didn't love it. We just kind of played because we were forced to. Mm-hmm. But I played up till, I, I started in, I think I started in fifth grade. And then I just, I played fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. And then my freshman year of high school, then I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was more like, uh, didn't want to be, a band geek you're you're you know you're so self-aware of yourself when you're a freshman in high school and i was just like oh i they are they are cool and i didn't want to be like that which is horrible looking back at it i should have stuck with it but i i bailed and then i started playing again my senior year when a couple friends were playing in a ska band and they they had asked me to uh join yeah 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 I don't want to be a band geek, so I'm going to be a ska kid. I'm going to be, <laughs> yes. So that was like 1986 when I uh, started playing with uh, my first like band. Mm-hmm. That was horrible. My God. I can't even imagine how bad I was, but I was. Was that Skank and Pickle? No, this oh. was, it was a band called A Shot in the Dark. Uh-huh. It was all high school kids and... Um, really good band, actually. I, I mean, the musicians were good looking back. I was definitely the weakest link. Yeah. And, uh, but Lars, who was in Skank and Pickle, he was in it. He was actually the singer and, um, he's a good band. <laughs> so was that, um, I guess it was your, your introduction to punk and ska comes around that time. I'm guessing. Yeah. So I was. So when I started high school, 83, 84, MTV was super new and super big and fresh. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of new waves. So uh, a lot of Billy Idol, a lot of Culture Mm -hmm. Club, Thompson Twins. So just started, I don't know if I was just, it was uh, subliminal, but I was very, very much uh, into the, uh, the music of that time. And then Devo mm. was very, uh, very much in the limelight with Whip It, I believe was our only top 40 hit. Yeah. Um, so we would, you just hear that on the radio. And then that got me into kind of that subculture. And then probably my end of my sophomore year, I started hanging out with some kids who were listening to like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys. Mm. And then I went to my first punk show. Um, 
in 85, which was Social Distortion. Hmm. And there's 10 bands. The, the first band was a band called Arsenal. Mm-hmm. And they came out and they said, we have t- a 10-minute set. And they just, I remember them playing a punk version of Sesame Street. <laughs> and then uh, what's cool is that band, it was, uh, I don't know if you know Chris Dodge. Um, he does slap a ham records was, yeah, was in yeah. spaz. Mm-hmm. So that was pre spaz. So it's oh, kind of wow. cool to have been able to see that. Uh-huh. And well, then uh, two seemingly, uh, unrelated sounding things. The, yeah. the idea that spaz was in a band that was doing a Sesame street punk cover. No, but it was cool. They were, I remember they were doing like, I remember the dudes in that band were just like, they were doing stage dives during, during the whole show for the other bands. So then what I also remember is the faction, which was mm. um, Steve Caballero's band. They were one of the openers. And again, there was probably could have been up to 10 openers. There was, I, especially back in the eighties, I remember just punk shows without so many bands. Mm. So what stood out with the faction was the amount of Bit. So I guess it, that would become their a thing. Like people yeah. would just start spitting at them. Yeah. And it was like raining spit. It was mm-hmm. insane. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the like uh, the punks didn't like them. I remember they were like, "Oh, you know, skaters. You guys are just." Mm-hmm. So it was it was, uh, it was weird because I was so young and I was I wasn't sure what was going on, but it was something I remembered. Like, ooh. And also, I remember just fights breaking out left and right. Yeah. Skinheads against long hairs and just like, whoa, what's going on? That's definitely, wild. Definitely not like the uh, kosher uh, friendliness of punk today, or at least the punk that I've listened to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the just the the chaos of all of these things that are kind of starting at once and the like punk um just seems to be such a large thing at that point there aren't the uh micro scenes haven't sort of formed off of the cell right right (laughs) (laughs) so skank and pickle um was your band and you started dill was it just to release skank and pickle records we just uh when we made, made the first demo tape you know you just at that time i don't think bands make demo tapes anymore or to try to sell they uh-huh. it's so cheap to make cds or uh they i think a lot of the diy bands are doing cassettes now mm. but uh yeah we would do we'd make the tape and then we we thought oh we should just come up with a name like a record label and we thought dill records was funny because of the pickle reference. And then we, uh-huh. I think it was Vlasic. We just kind of parodied that design. It was a great mm-hmm. design we had for Dill Records. And then um, we were just, uh, I guess, unintentionally, we had become a record label. Yeah, it was kind of just out of necessity to put your own stuff out. Exactly. Um, and it was, it was, I mean, we probably sold that first demo tape. We probably sold like 
2000 copies which is crazy yeah uh it would and it was just this one local record store we would sell i mean i would go every week and we'd probably sell like 50 a week it was crazy that is wild yeah it is it was uh it was very cool uh a cool feeling it's funny to look back at that time and um seeing how it coincides with operation ivy and I guess the perspective that I get from Brendan with slapstick is people want ska. And if you're doing ska at the right time, people will buy it. Yeah. Especially then because the, the second wave of ska was just dying out. Um, all the two tone bands from England, it's kind of wrapped it up in terms of touring in the u.s but mm-hmm. it'd become really this underground movement of mods and skinheads and so if you had played if you played scott it's funny because people talk about like the the um third wave boom and how scott was in the in the limelight and that actually ruined ruined the music and its uh sustainability at that time mm-hmm. uh, because every underground band did well like let's say the toasters, you know, when they first came to the West coast, I went to their show and they played a nice venue, this place called Slim's is a six fifty cap room. There's probably like 300 people there. This is a, a band that was not on the radio had never toured on the West coast. It was just word of mouth of this ska band coming from New York called the toasters. And so everyone would go to, everyone would go to every ska show when it came because it wasn't often. Uh, and it was, it was really a cool thing to experience and a cool thing to be a part of, but, uh, yeah, we could talk about the ska boom later, but it's, uh, like beating a dead horse. for me. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think something that, that you seem to have really latched onto too, is just the inclusivity of the genre at its, at its core and the the way that as a scene it's diverse and seemingly very accepting well i think now more than ever it uh i'll be honest when ska in the 80s the the late 80s early 90s it was it wasn't very inclusive it was very scene oriented uh so if and Skank and Pickle, we didn't do well with the, the purists. So mm. the, even though I was part of that scene personally before Skank and Pickle, they, and a lot of them liked me, but they just didn't like our band. Uh, a lot of the skinheads, I remember they would say, you know, we like you. We just don't like your band because we mixed genres. We were so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would play funk and metal yeah. <laughs> and punk. I mean, Operation Ivy, they had a way bigger Skadra than we did. Yeah. Our Skadra. I know, but they, for some reason, the the Berkeley mods and skins were okay with them. We Mm -hmm. were, because they were just kind of like, we were just kind of freaky. It was a weird band. Like we were, we were like this tall, four out of the six members were all over six feet tall, including our, our female guitarist. Mm-hmm. And then we had this crazy bald bass player that would ride a unicycle. It was just like a freak show. Yeah. And I think uh, people didn't um, in that scene early on weren't happy. 
so yeah, we were totally ostracized from the from the ska scene and in in the Bay Area and LA too. And it, yeah. we just kind of pegged pegged away on just people who like weird music, and and we would kept we kept uh, just growing our fan base that way. But That's yeah, so that funny. that that early scene didn't like us. It's like, sorry, is there too much madness going on? <laughs> oh, God. Um, it, as far as the label goes, um, was that, did you kind of just get your your fingers in there and just say, oh, this is this is something that's working for me and like my senses? Yeah, it's funny. So we had actually been offered a record deal by Restless, which mm-hmm. was a pretty big indie label. They had done They Might Be Giants and mm-hmm. uh, The Untouchables. And we had played a, a South by Southwest showcase. Like, I think it was in 91 or 90. Wow. Even it was early on in our as a band. And then coincidentally, I had watched the MC Hammer documentary, uh, behind the music maybe it was the vh1 um uh-huh. and he was talking about how he got offered a major label deal early on and turned it down because he did the math and realized he could make more money just doing it himself uh and so i was kind of doing because we were selling so many records ourselves. i kind of did the math and i'm like you know i think uh i think we're gonna pass the the deal wasn't good mm-hmm it was not it was not a artist friendly deal so I, unless they were going to offer us something really big i felt like eh, we could just do it ourselves and, and also at the same time i started getting into the philosophy of punk more and so i was really like enthralled with like the ideas of ian mckay and how mm-hmm. he would say you know i don't even care if we have distro as long as people are able to mail order then the music is accessible and so i i was really like kind of just like in this like punk euphoria of like, okay, I want to be like Ian Mackay. I want to do it myself. And then I noticed like, okay, well, Greg Ginn from Black Flag, he's doing SST and uh, Brett Gerowitz was doing Epitaph. And so it was like kind of piecing it together. Well, all these guys are just doing it themselves mm-hmm. uh, on a much bigger level, of course. But I was like, well, yeah, why can't I do it too? Yeah. You held that pretty pretty you have held that pretty well and i i remember seeing you know the don't pay more than ten dollars for this cd on on Asian right. and stuff in, in the stores and that that blew my mind that's it, good it's, it's, <laughs> that's totally the the fugazi thing though right don't pay more yeah. than 8.99 for yeah for this record i, w- I was definitely modeling it after after Ian Mackay's philosophy. And I would ask myself anytime I had a question or I wasn't sure of something, I would kind of like think, what would Ian Mackay do in this situation? And I did that quite a bit early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a weird way to do business, but I think it was, uh, I think it was helpful. It has to come in handy too. When you get to something like Pezcore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. What would MC Hammer do? What would Ian McKay do? Perfect. So <laughs> <laughs> um 
so with Asian Man, was it separate from Dill just because of the kind of fallout with yeah. Stank and Pickle? Yeah. So I was really burnt out. So this, it was in 1996, that whole year. I was just like, it's funny because as the band got more popular, the more burnout I got. Mm. I could remember just like being playing pack shows and just kind of looking out and just go, it doesn't really matter. We could just be playing anything and kids are just going off and they just want to stage dive. And this is lame. Mm. <laughs> I, I remember thinking that. And then that was kind of when I knew, man, maybe it's time to stop. And uh, I felt guilty because everyone else was, we had made a decision that we would go full time and people quit their jobs. So I kind of felt some guilt that I needed to keep going. So I started just flying the shows just to uh, keep my sanity. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the money I was making, I was just using on plane tickets to keep going. And then, and then it just uh, came to a head. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. If you guys want to keep going, let me know. And they said, yeah, we want to keep going. And so I played my last show. Uh, like the next day I played my last show, which was in Santa Barbara. And then I, when I, I, I drove up separately and then I drove home. That's when I thought, okay, I'm going to, because I was doing all the work for Dill Records too. I was mm -hmm. like, I'm going to start my own thing. And then I went hard. I, I, I worked so hard that first month. I think I wrote, it was, it was when zines existed. I'd written letters yeah. to hundreds of zines all over the world and just letting them know about this new label. Um, and then it, it, went, it went like gangbusters right off the bat because we, our first four releases was Less Than Jake, Slapstick, Bruce Lee band, Misfits of Ska One. Yeah. And this, so this is right. Ska's is booming. Yeah. <laughs> Everything was just selling like crazy. Yeah. And it, it's, I mean, that's crazy because was it Pe Pezcor? You held right. on to that and A&M wanted to take it off your hands and you. Uh, Capital, yeah. I think Capital had offered to buy it early on um i could be wrong i yeah. think I'm, i think i'm right i'm trying to think of it uh and i said no and then um which was very smart because we sold over a hundred thousand of that thing yeah uh on asian man and that really helped pave the way for for the rest of the label because the distributors knew it was selling. So every distributor wanted it. It was easy to, um, do business. And, but the other releases too, that slapstick, that first slapstick look at did oh, really yeah. well. The misfits of Ska one did insanely well. And so did the Bruce Lee band. Yeah. And so it was just like off and running. Uh, you, you think of these new labels that start, it's, you know, you just kind of, it's so hard for them. For me, it was very easy. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. it's just a kind of a, I think you have a better chance of winning the lottery than doing what I was doing. I mean, truly. And Slapstick, like I, on top of selling well, that family tree is just oh, yeah. unbelievable. It is. <laughs> so... 
Should we go down the family tree? Before we do that, I, yeah. <laughs> I get to talk to Brendan once a week, and mm -hmm. every time I walk away from it, I'm one, I'm always thinking about something that he said that I'm really only beginning to process how smart it was, but also just he's a very kind and warm person. And I just was wondering if you have recollections of uh, meeting Brendan or just early on. Early on, Brendan. He told me about the Wrigleyville Dogs, which is, I, I believe, where you proposed to uh, put out the first slapstick LP. Or maybe God, I, the, I can't even remember. Well, yeah. So we originally, it came out on Dill. Uh, so did Lesson Jake. Mm -hmm. And we had brought that over to Asian Man when I started that. But okay, I'm trying to think of early Brendan Kelly. God, I can't remember. My first memory of Slapstick was they opened up for us at the Metro. And I remember Matt Stamps, the guitarist, had a Pennywise shirt on. I'm like, eh. I was not, not a big fan of Pennywise. No offense to them. It's just not my style of music. I was like, ah. Yeah, no offense uh, to I'm still waiting to meet a fan of Pennywise. Uh, but uh, but they were so good. They were so good. Uh, Brendan was this very energetic front man. You know, they're all teenagers, too. So it's like, wow, they're really good musicians, too. Mm -hmm. I, I, but I can't recall talking to them about... Uh, I do remember being in Southern California. They were on tour with MUC 30 <clears throat> and I had gone down with them uh, to a couple shows and we played a place called the showcase in Corona <clears throat> and Mr. Brett from Epitaph was there and he wanted to sign them. Yeah. And they were upstairs at the club. He's talking to them and I just happened to walk up. And at the same time I walked up, he asked them like, you know, who, how are you doing with your, your current label? And they, they pointed at me and they're like, well, ask him. He's right there. And then I remember his face. He's like, Hey man, I'm not trying to steal your band. Uh -huh. I, I'm not like, hey, gay. That's cool. <laughs> so I remember that very clearly. Uh, but you know, I didn't mind. I, I, the, the idea has always been for the bands to get whatever is best for them. And uh, mm -hmm. I had, from the start, never wanted to get bigger than a garage label. Yeah. And so the idea of bands moving on to bigger and better things, I'm all for it. Like, yeah, move, go, I, do well. I mean, especially when you <clears throat> there are so many ex examples of, and Pescord, I think, being one of the shining ones of let them go do their thing if you're able to sell the the back catalog that you have that's yeah. not any more work that you have to do other than to keep it pressed yeah yeah but Pescor would have even if they didn't go to capital i think that album would still have done very well yeah um so with the the slapstick family tree i i think i've always been taken by the the fact that you stuck with them and especially through projects like like lord ways and 
yeah. But, but freewheeling and, and Broken Star, especially where you have you have a band like Sat- Slapstick who I think broke up prematurely as mm-hmm. far as Slapstick is concerned. Um, yeah. But, you know, Broken Star and Freewheeling are two records that are so different from slapstick and sure think too about the the early lawrence arms material and how rough it was um i I think i've always just been taken by the fact that you continued with them and and stuck with them yeah i just said yes to everything and i remember guided tour chicago coming out and going man this sounds raw I think, and I still think Brendan was just rushing it. He just wanted to jump back on the saddle mm-hmm. and go. He's like, I'm doing this. I mean, how I feel like it was just months after when they were already recording, they had this new band and they had an album out. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. And by the way, here's the second LP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then all those songs for the splits. Uh, he was going and then i remember him wanting to tour europe he's like yeah we want to tour europe i'm like okay i had uh been working with a booking agent it was so early on i can't imagine how rough that tour was but obviously i'm sure they have good memories now but 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 at the time but it was rough yeah at least they they were young so they could take Mm -hmm. it he told me a story about um like writing quinson double your money right before they left for that tour and he just had to kind of like hum it to himself throughout that tour because he wanted to make sure that he kept it in mind when he for when he got home. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> um, but when you say like you just said yes to everything, is it um, is that your enthusiasm, or or do you have a hard time saying no? I have a hard time saying no. And I'm I'm getting better at it now. It's only took 25 years, but yeah, I've uh, yeah I finally started saying no to to bands I've been working with and uh, friends I've been working with. Like I, uh, when you go that through that slop slapstick tree, let's just take Rob Kellenberger, the drummer. So he went from Tuesday, <laughs> yeah. Then he went to Colossal. Which, the smoking smoking popes that, the colossal is great it, unbelievable it, unbelievable yeah. record and that took me a while i did not like it at first yeah. i didn't like it at all i was like oh what is this the rank uh, records ne- you did with david I, I think you you said um yeah this is a new one for me too i got into it like two years ago it came out yeah. 10 years ago <laughs> but then i remember like him doing lord which is this metal band yeah. and i still did it <laughs> i was like oh my god no one's gonna buy this why am i doing this it was just that loyalty mm-hmm. and then i finally like i said i can't do anymore on that i can't do anymore you're an old man you're not gonna tour who's gonna buy this stuff mm-hmm. uh and that was hard because you know it's my friend yeah he he's okay. <laughs> um, I know I know you've talked about goddamn it so many times. I don't want to make you have to repeat yourself, but uh, I listened. I you know I t- I talk about an alkaline trio song once a week with David. Uh-huh. I I listen to goddamn it 
yesterday in the car and I just I have goosebumps thinking about listening to it in the car yesterday. Oh wow. You know, it's just it's such an unbelievable record and and it's so foundational to the label. Um agreed. That's uh I mean, I think that that's an example of that that loyalty that you have, like really paying off. It's like, oh, Dan from Slapsticks got another new band. And I'll put this seven inch out. Yeah, actually, Skiba is the one who wrote the letter about oh, really? the seven inch, but the the four year lungs only seven inch. Like, I yeah, still Dan have, I still have the, the letter, yet, right? Oh, do you? No, he he was he was in the band. Uh, he, he wrote, yeah, 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 he was. So, uh, yeah. So Matt, Matt wrote the letter and just said like, it was on this like cardboard stock uh-huh. and, um, just like, uh, Danny, like he was like a, a press release almost in a letter form. And it was like, Danny likes to sing a little Glenn likes to sing a little Matt likes mm-hmm. to sing a lot. Um, blah, blah, blah. I know I've said it before, but that first, that for your lungs only, the first song I heard was Kick Cooking Wine. Mm-hmm. And I thought it sounded like they might be giants. It was crazy. Just that song. No, no other song. The way he sounds when he breaks into the first verse. And I remember the first ads I put out, I would say like Jawbreaker meets They Might Be Giants <laughs> in my description. What did they think of that? that that's a. <laughs> I don't think they liked it. And also I was like, I wasn't good at like, like clearing artwork with bands. I would just do it. Mm-hmm. So I did the art for four year lungs only. And they weren't happy with that. Like, what is this <laughs> terrible artwork? And it's terrible on my end, but they were so young. They're just kind of going, okay, mm-hmm. I guess it's cool. Uh, I think I did that with the Broadways too, at least on like with the, the labels. I think I just used a picture of Brendan, playing yeah. baseball for the labels uh, and that's how i i remember i didn't even use computers when i did labels i would just cut and paste it and mail it so i would like do like um go to kinko's photocopy mm-hmm. whatever i wanted and draw a circle and go this is the label and that's how i did it back in the day but yeah for your lungs only i definitely remember they were not happy with that artwork. That's so funny. And we're going to talk about that more on our Patreon, patreon.com slash better yet podcast. Mike, the fact that you have that letter, um, do you, are, do you save everything? Um, no. Oh, okay. And I, I kind of wish I did, but, uh, I went through, I'm continuing to go through this uh, minimalist way of life, just trying to get rid of everything. So I've gotten rid of tons of stuff. Going back to Ian Mackay, I just saw an interview with him where he he keeps everything. Mm-hmm. And not a hoarder, but an archivist. Yeah. Archivist, <laughs> which is cool. He can find anything, any flyer, uh, any piece of history in his career. And I do wish I had that, but I don't. I went through a purge at the, in the spring of, of last year. And 
my partner and I just moved into a house. So now I'm going through a, I'm buying, I'm just taking all trash and bringing it into the home. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, you, do you remember the first time you heard God damn it? The very first time I don't, I don't, I can't recall the very first time mm -hmm. I, I heard it, but I know that I went a, at least a full year where it was in the CD player. And as soon as I got to work, I just pushed play. Yeah. And I don't think I, I think I just put that, that was the only CD in that CD player. So I just, it was just, it would live there. And then if I had to listen to something else, I would take it out, play it and then put goddamn it back in. Yeah. So, gosh, I can't, I don't think there, by far, there's not a record that I've listened to more than Goddamn It. And I still don't know the lyrics because I can't retain lyrics. I always felt jealous when you go to, especially early on the Alkaline Trio shows, everyone's singing along. I'm like, I don't, I don't know the words because I can't retain lyrics. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Like I can hear a song a thousand times. I don't know the lyrics. I think if I didn't know the lyrics, uh, before if i knew the lyrics before the age of 22 i know them all and ever since then just none of it retains song titles too i don't i don't know <laughs> any, any song. like i can't even barely remember my own songs <laughs> i have to perform i'm like oh my god i don't remember the lyrics I gotta practice hard <laughs> so you know with records like pescore and, and god damn it and I guess as, as things have progressed, has has it ever become difficult just in a business sense to maintain the handshake deal, no contracts per album way of doing it? No, not really, because I always felt like, what does a contract do other than bind you to something you don't want to be a part of? So the idea of working with friends, if that friendship is not working, I don't want to be friends with someone who's not happy with our situation. So, or not, or, or aren't happy with uh, working with me. So I more than um, willing to let them take their records. It's only happened a few times, which is fine. And, but for the most part, the handshake deal still, still works to this day yeah and, and i have bands still that ask hey do you think we could have our digital back i'm like of course yeah. like you know big d and the kids table i was like of course because why should i be taking you know they paid for all the recording i don't even deserve it i wasn't even pressing physical so i was just getting free money mm -hmm. uh, and they're a band that still still exists and working so it's like whatever i can do to get have them make more money i'm i'm down with unless i was i'm still like uh heavily involved in uh producing a physical product i don't i don't feel it's right for me to take their money yeah i, I guess on the on the other side of that you know in the early 2000s there's this pop punk boom and i I it's it kind of like coincides I think with a with a quiet period for Asian man. Yeah, one hundred percent. As I got older, I started losing touch with youth, the youth movement. So I got older, my peers were getting older, 
I kept releasing bands that were my age. Yeah. And it was a good like four years of that. And just kind of like trying to figure out like, Hmm, I got to make a change or this is going to die. And that's when I started making a conscious effort to go to the DIY shows, the house shows, you know, as, as an older guy in your forties, I was like, ah, oh, this is awkward, but I was embraced, you know, people knew who I was. So it wasn't, I didn't, I just didn't want to be that creepy old guy at these house shows, uh-huh. but, uh, it, it was cool. And I, I, I'm not a creeper. So I just kind of like went for the music and, uh, kind of got thrown back into that, um, scene. And that's how the next wave of bands came. And that was with bomb, the music industry, Lemuria, um, the wild, mm. Um, that wild record. Fantastic. Which one? That the wild. The, oh, the self-titled. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Slept on. It's such a it, good record. It is a good record. They were a great band too. So, but yeah, with that second wave, we were just, and Andrew Jackson Jihad, of course, mm-hmm. that was the, that was the big one out of everybody that, that put me over like, okay. I've, I've reinvented myself, um, and have able to get this, uh, kind of dinosaur label out of, <laughs> out and into the world, into something fresh. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was the game changer. And so even to this day in my fifties now, I'm still trying to, uh, you know, keep it, you got to put out new bands or it's just going to become a dinosaur label. Yeah. And so that's what I've done now. I feel like with this next wave of Grumpster, Small Crush, mm. more family band. Mm-hmm. You know, not to forget Joyce Manor um, in there. Put out the best Joyce Manor record, my friend. And so it's just, it's it's cool. And, and I, mm-hmm. you got to remember that uh, when you work with young bands, they're excited. It's something they haven't yeah. had time to get jaded yet. So it's, that's what I enjoy. just like seeing their uh, excitement. It's like when you start working with older bands and they're just like jaded, they see their peers that succeeded and they're still trying mm-hmm. to succeed. And the ones that aren't trying to succeed are just doing it for fun. That's great, but they can't tour. There's really, it's hard to put, you can't put those records out. At least I can't anymore. Yeah. I can't do the the favors to friends who are professionals but love playing music still. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it, it it is pretty wild. Like looking at a year like two thousand and seven because it's not it's not mythologized really at all, um, and certainly not in the way that like the slapstick family tree is but you know you mentioned AJJ and and Lemuria and Bond the Music Industry and then there's also I think noteworthy is the Shinobu and Padarian split that's in there and that's your hometown that's right I forgot about Hard Girls too those a lot of good records yeah a lot of good (laughs) records and and a, a real boom for in your in your area with, uh, you know, summer vacation. I think the Toys That Kill really uh, carried 
things for a while there and then the joys yeah i don't know i don't know how far the toys that kill carried it was a great record i love toys that kill i like todd congelier uh, I, I like all a, a, a quietly like very influential band especially on on a band Agreed. Like, like winter break yeah summer vacation and they're from southern california from san pedro so mm-hmm. um but uh that f uh you know he was an fyp also but that recess records i feel like they had their own scene i'm not sure why todd even let me put out something because <laughs> he only puts out stuff himself, so it yeah. was pretty cool i think i was just such a big fan i was like oh please please let me do something mm-hmm. jeff rosenstock um i mean that the relationship that you have with him it's it it just feels like two magnets who of course are gonna end up connecting just with the ethics that you both share yeah you do you you see a lot of bullshit in the music industry a lot of people talk the talk and don't walk the walk dude that guy is the real deal 100 percent uh there's nothing phony about him Mm mm-hmm he has corrected me on numerous occasions of things I've said in, in passing that just wasn't appropriate. Mm -hmm. I kind of found myself going, Oh, wow. This guy is a real deal. (laughs) I need to to check myself. Uh, Eye opening, eye opening stuff. And so it's a, it's a, it's a rare thing when you meet someone that's just that, that sincere and that legit and just enjoys life too. He just, he enjoys playing music, enjoys being on tour, enjoys doing stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what I like. He just likes trying new things. Like when we go, when we went to Asia for the first time, just how excited he was to just do everything, see everything, play every weird video game. Very cool. Yeah. I think it's it it's funny to to look at like you know his records come out for free and that and that's part of the deal and I I'm just looking at like that moment in particular of I'm guessing that your physical sales were had been diminishing for a few years just because of digital Mm-hmm. And also, I think this is about the beginning of the resurgence of vinyl period. Yeah, um, exactly. You hit it right on the nose. That get warmer. The first ball in the music industry, I think, is the first record we put out on vinyl in a long time. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even have LP boxes we had figured out a way to jimmy the uh, priority boxes that you get for free from from the USPS and make them into an LP box. And that's what I did early on. Yeah. We would just ship them in those. And then not until like, okay, we couldn't keep up with making them because it wasn't an easy box to make into uh, mm-hmm. a mailer. Um, but yeah, that was I, I'm pretty sure that was the first one we had done on vinyl in a long time. I think your frugalness is, uh, has, has become somewhat of a, of a legend <laughs> and that workaround of the, of the priority mailer 
boxes is uh that's a gem i love it yeah you should see what i can fit into a priority flat rate envelope i can fit a double xl sweatshirt into a flat rate envelope it's magic people see it and they're just like no 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 and i'm gonna watch and they're like oh you did it <laughs> of course i did it <laughs> <laughs> I've been buying, um, I've been doing estate sales a lot since I moved out here. And I uh-huh. I am finding that a lot of, I can buy lots of like, you know, uh, all of a sudden I'm having a hard time thinking of, uh, you know, crooners of, of the 50s and, uh, you know, somebody somewhere has a stack of 50 Dean Martin lps that are just beat up that you can buy a lot of 50 of them and Uh sale for a dollar and i've been i've been shipping records that i sell oh okay and i i feel great about it that's great (laughs) (laughs) do you do you have to listen to them first make sure they're not skipping or anything oh no i just use the jackets as uh, oh just use like the, a padding oh, just for shipping stuff i still gotta oh, buy, still got gotta buy like the mailers but okay. rather than buy like the uh cardboard padding i just put it oh i thought you were on. like selling the actual dean martin records oh no no <laughs> nobody buys those <laughs> oh it's a shame it is truly um one one story that i i think i I think about quite often um, is seeing sundials in in some basement in in Chicago and Harris just saying Chicago. Oh, obviously the Alkaline Trio are my favorite band. Uh, we have a record for sale. It's on Asian Man Records. I like can't believe this life that I'm that I'm living uh, and. I guess I, I wanted to ask you um, just about. I I'm very sentimental, and and so seeing people who are who are my age um, working with you and putting records out with you, and also um, doing so in quite the same way that you've always done. Um, do you do you absorb things like that do you you know do you take that in and and are you sentimental about things like that not really (laughs) 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 i mean i like i like hearing i like hearing the bands that i've affected them in one way or another in a positive way you know also i've worked with so many bands and so many musicians i have obviously i've closer relationship with some and some I don't have any relationship with. And um, mm-hmm. sometimes I feel guilty about that, but there's, there's only so much I can do. Uh, but I do like having some connection more than just a business relationship. If, if it was just a business relationship, it just feels so empty. Uh, why am I doing this? Is it strictly for capitalism or is it because I really love the bond the, the bond of friendships that I've created since I was a kid through punk and underground music. And so 
it's it's the latter and so i try to continue that and uh even with these new bands i like to just keep checking in seeing how they're doing you know mm-hmm. text each other try to be funny support each other i i i've talked to you know people like mike huguenor and and morgan and and jason clackley and laura stevenson and and it's always just uh a joy that they get to express on working with you. And I, um, I think one thing that can like get me down about music and it might just be that I look at the internet too much is, is that it feels like it's become joyless in even in like underground, uh, circles in the last few years. I don't know if it's always been this way, but there's a seemingly like a, a rise in a professionalism that really doesn't seem to amount to much of anything other than <laughs> people being unhappy. I yeah, I, I, I don't know if I see that. So what are you feeling... Let me run that by again. Like, what are you feeling? Suddenly there are contracts like everywhere. And then there's contracts that aren't like being fulfilled. And there's, I don't know, small leagues that are... Not paying paying their bands. Yeah. And then it seems like just a continual panic from musicians. And I'm... Yeah, I think think what you're seeing is just the accessibility to of people being able to voice their opinions. This has been going on since punk started. Like mm-hmm. if you, I don't know if you like posh boy records or, uh, I mean, look at even SST, SST. Uh, um, uh, I think we could think of any of the old eighties punk labels, frontier records. I mean, I've heard some, I don't want to, I, I don't know for a fact if Lisa from frontier, is legitimately not paying, but I've, I've heard rumors and you just hear these rumors of, of, of labels not paying their bands. So I think it just, I think it's always been there. And so we're just seeing it more because people are able to voice their opinion yeah. so easily online. Mm-hmm. It seems like you've been able to maintain your sense of, of joy and, and to continue well, the only the reason I've been able to survive is because I pay royalties. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's all. I don't understand. I just don't understand. I mean, think about Lookout Records and how successful they were as a label. Right. They they had two Green Day albums, Operation Ivy, the Screeching Weasel catalog, the Queers catalog too. Yeah. Avail, mm-hmm. um, Mr. T Experience. How can a label like that? that had three gold records fold. It's because they did their band. They were trying to be a matador or, a, um, or, you know, just a, a giant indie. And they were, they were spending all their money on these, uh, South by Southwest showcases or Midham or mm-hmm. CMJ. And it was just like, man, you are forgetting the punk roots that you, you came from and they lost, they lost everything. That's insane to me. So for me, I just make sure 
I know what, what kind of money I make. I know what I can afford to spend. And you don't go over that and you make sure your bands are paid. If you don't pay your bands, there's going to be trouble unless the bands are that dumb. And that, think about no idea records too. That's how no idea fell. Yeah. So we lost no idea records. We lost lookout records, both for not paying their bands. Mm-hmm. It's insane. And, and no idea was so influential. I remember like touring in England and asking the opening band, like, Oh, what do you sound like? And they're like, Oh, you know, we got that Gainesville sound. Yeah. And I was like, what? Gainesville sound. That's crazy. And, um, yeah, just pay the bands, do accounting. Yeah. Make sure you don't spend over what you have or it's going to be over. You think, how long, how long you think you got doing this? You think you're gonna keep going? Yeah, I'm still, I still, it still feels pretty fresh to me. Yeah. Um, the fact that I do everything that gets a little tedious, just doing, you know, the mail order, the accounting, if I could just one day, just step in a role of like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and everyone else does all the work. I, I could probably do it forever. Uh, the DIY philosophy, I think is, is maybe become too extreme in my case where I feel like, Oh, I got to do it all. Mm-hmm. I've got to do it all myself. You know, plus I'm a musician too. So I'm still creating music. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going, I'm going all the time. Like, like today, right, right after I get off this, this interview, I'm going straight to work to do mail order because we're backed up. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I still enjoy doing it. So I guess as long as I still enjoy it, I'll keep going. Well, just preparing for this interview has been um, an eye-opening experience, I think, for me to just look at your, look at the things that you've said in the in the past and realize that they've had an impact on everything that I do in ways that are just, they've been absorbed to such an extent that I'm not even thinking about the fact that like, oh, I, I learned this from Mike Park. So thank you for talking to me and, and for uh, coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right, loves, thank you for joining us. Oh, AsianManRecords.com okay. for all your mail order needs. BetterYetPod.com, BetterYetPodcast.BandCamp.com. Follow the show on Patreon, Patreon.com slash BetterYetPodcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you, friends. Yeah.